Good morning. Welcome to Encounter Church. Um, that just is such a good beat. I just wanted to start dancing, but I realized you would all see me. So, um, welcome. Uh, as Jason said earlier, we're glad you're here today. My name is Chris, and I'm the pastor. And if this is your first time, I'm glad you're here. Today, we're kicking off a series called GoPro. And let me frame it real quick, and then we'll jump into it. But this series is going to kind of mark the month of April for us. And the idea around this series is to look at life through a different lens and to really grab hold of this concept of going pro that, that many of us would probably agree that we're not okay with just living an amateur-style life or having an amateur marriage or an amateur relationship with our children or an amateur career, that we want to go pro, that we want to see our lives go to that next level, whether it's in our finances, whether it's in our relationships, whether it's in our faith, that there's a sense in all of us that I think we hunger for more that we don't want to just make a living, we actually want to make a life. And that's what this series is centered around, is what does it look like? How do we embrace the methods, the mindsets, and the marks of a life that's gone pro? And in order to kind of navigate this through the month, I'm going to kick it off with looking at a distinctive mark that I think is essential if we're going to go pro in any area of our life, whether it's professional, whether it's personal, whether it's relational or finances, that this is the first critical step. And in fact, it's actually an NBA star that kind of helps to start the conversation for us. Uh, to kind of date myself age-wise, I was um, a child of the 90s, and uh, the dominant team of the 90s uh, was the Chicago Bulls. I remember the Chicago Bulls, and I know that they're the Chicago Bulls. They're not the Boston Celtics. But there was this period of time that even if you are a hater of the Bulls, you have to appreciate that the best basketball team, arguably, in NBA history happened to be that Chicago Bulls team and that championship run. That, and the star of that team was Michael Jordan. I mean, Michael Jordan arguably, is in a realm of his own. The only other person, arguably, who could be placed in that same realm would be Bill Russell from the Boston Celtics. But outside of that, this is a completely different class of player. To the comparisons of Michael Jordan to LeBron James and Kobe Bryant aren't actually factual when you dig into the stats. Michael Jordan was in a league of his own. I mean, just here's some of the stats. He was a six-time NBA champion. Right? He not only had an NBA championship, he had an NCAA championship, and he was a two-time Olympic gold medal winner in basketball. No basketball player alive today has those same credentials that Jordan had. He's been a champion in every single realm of professional basketball, collegiate, national, and international. Yet, to make it even more impressive, he's five-time NBA MVP, not just game MVP, MVP, the league MVP. He's a 10-time all-time um, NBA first-time. He was a rookie of the year. He was a 14-time all-star. He was a three-time all-star MVP. He's in the Basketball Hall of Fame, but here's the incredible stat that's extraordinary. Michael Jordan made 49.7% of the shots he took over his entire career. That's incredible. That means for almost every two shots he made, one went in. 
And the reason, just to be technical, why Kobe cannot compare is that Kobe Bryant, while really, really gifted, was only 45%. Kobe Bryant would have had to make 2,540 shots in a row, all go into the basket to compete with Michael Jordan's stat of being able to complete a shot. Like, Jordan is incredible. And yet, if you were to read Jordan's biographies or you were to dig into Jordan, what you would find is his strength is a little shocking. Lansby, who wrote a biography in Jordan in 2013 called Michael Jordan, The Life, Life, said this, his ability to listen was his most precious gift. To his coaches, his capacity to be coached was his single most impressive attribute, beyond even his extraordinary 18 years worth of spectacular seasons. That Dean Smith, his college coach, arguably one of the best college coaches in NCAA history, said that he had never seen a player listen so closely to what the coaches said, then go and do it. Phil Jackson, comparing Jordan and Bryant, made an argument that Jordan was in a completely different league of his own as a leader, as a listener, as someone who was coached. That Jordan absorbed the information. In fact, Jordan would later say about himself to confirm what others had said, that his greatest skill was that he was teachable. That as a high schooler cut from the varsity team, he went back and got better. As a man who hit his stride going into the NBA in his 30s, who no longer had the body to take it to the board like he had done in his early season, perfected the fadeaway jumper which was not something he did in the first half of his professional career. He developed the fadeaway jumper and its accuracy as a response to recognizing his body could not take the pounding of driving to the board time and time and time again. Jordan recognized, like he said, that he was like a sponge, that he listened to what his coaches said. And even if he thought they were wrong, he would listen and learn something and do something with it. And I want to highlight Jordan because Jordan is arguably the best basketball player who has ever played in the history of the NBA. Simultaneously, he was the most open to correction, coaching, and advice. And that if the greatest basketball player would take advice, insight, and correction on the court, then what does it say about us in those realms of our lives where we want to go pro too? That none of us are Jordans in most areas of our lives, and yet Jordan listened to feedback. And that this message today, while initially may not feel very comfortable for you, it's the key to you and I going pro in our lives. It's the ability to listen to feedback. And get correction. Right? Many of us don't want to sign up for that. Many of us don't want to sit down with someone who's going to list the things that we currently are shortchanging them in. And yet, I would argue that the key to you and I going to the next level, whether in relationship, whether in finances, whether in personal, professional, with our kids, with our roommate, whoever it may be, is going to center around our capacity to be corrected and to listen and to take advice and to respond in a way that's healthy. And I think it's something that we can all do. It may not be something you're comfortable doing, 
But it's something that you and, all, you and I can actually start to practice in our lives at the same level that Michael Jordan did it on the basketball court. It's found in a passage that the, kind of the two steps I want to um, unpack for us today is found in a passage in the book of Proverbs. And it's a, a really short section, but embedded in this section is just prime for this idea of going pro. It's, the book of Proverbs is written by a, predominantly a man named King Solomon, who's considered to be one of the wisest men who have ever lived. He, at his time, was the wisest king in the world, and so other kings and leaders would travel sometimes weeks or months, to come to him, to ask him questions and to learn from him. He had brilliant insights. He had governmental kind of methodologies. He had insights for building. I mean, this man's wisdom spread into all the different areas, and people wanted to come and learn from him. He's actually responsible for three books in the Old Testament, the um, book of Proverbs, Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, depending on how you would read it, and then the book of Ecclesiastes. He writes all three of these songs. The, all three of these writings, collections, sayings, poems, come from his mind that was supernaturally gifted with wisdom. But the book of Proverbs is the one I want to center on today because the book of Proverbs was written to help prepare his children for being princes, princesses, kings, and queens. You see, Solomon was the king, and he recognized he had a responsibility to prepare his oldest son and his children for the life of royalty and the leadership pressures that would come with it. And so the book of Proverbs was written as a parenting guide. It was written as a preparation guide. It was about forging the heart, the characters, and the life skills that were going to be needed to go pro. And, and so throughout the book of Proverbs, these little sayings were meant to be sticky so that the kids would take them with them. So they would remember the lessons. And there are some key disciplines that Solomon actually would spend time. And so there are certain themes that cover the entire book that Solomon would repeatedly go back to. Because Solomon, probably like you if you're a parent, has knew that his kids did not listen the first time he said something. Right? And most of us recognize that it's the 17th time that they start to listen to us making the statement and the profound insight. And Solomon comes back to this point over and over. And one of these points is around correction. And he says, here's the thing, that there are two ways to respond to correction. And to kind of sum it up and keep with the pattern of the series, there's the amateur way, and then there's the professional way. There's the amateur way of doing it, and then there's the pro way of responding. And, and in this passage in chapter 9, Solomon lay, lays out for his children the amateur way and the pro way of dealing with correction. And it's the pro way that makes the difference in our lives. So if you have the Encounter Church app that Jason referenced earlier, you can actually click on message notes. It'll already be preloaded for you. Um, if you don't have a Bible, um, if you like a physical Bible, we can give you one. And if you don't have one with you and you don't have the app, you can actually read it behind me while I'm working through it. Um, but it begins in verse 7. It says, Whoever corrects a mocker invites insult. Whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. So uh, what I alluded to about repetition is present in this passage that in the ancient kind of Hebrew approach, um, they were oral culture. They didn't write much down. So they would repeat things. They would structure things. They would say words in certain ways that would kind of bounce around in someone's head and heart and mind. 
And this is one of those ways. They would repeat themselves differently in different kind of phrasings to make it stick. And that's what you see. You see two basic kind of paths repeated multiple times over for the point to be made and kind of the grab hold on the inside of saying, here's the deal. There's the amateur way and there's the pro way. And what you see, if you read them and kind of what we'll work through, is that there's some shifts that the amateur and the pro um, have a subtle difference between them and how they respond to correction. And that's what I want to unpack for you. That's what I want to draw out because there's two different shifts that you and I can make that we see that's in between the amateur and the pro. The first is a shift in direction. If you notice, it says that whoever corrects a mocker, they, they do what? They invite insult. They uh, incur abuse, and then they're hated. Right? There's this response from the mocker, from the amateur, that comes back, and it's pushback. That the amateur insults, they abuse, they react, they make excuses. Whereas the pro, he says, um, that the pro actually will love you if you rebuke them. They get wiser, and they add to their learning. So there's this subtle difference in how the response happens, and it's based in a directional shift where the amateur pushes back, right? The amateur says, hold, uh-uh. The pro leans in. The pro adds. They take. They listen. Where the amateur pushes back, the pro leads in. The amateur wants to be understood. Well, they start man-explaining or explaining in a way. They're like, well, if you understood, if you, if you knew, well, what you don't realize, where the pro says, I, I want to understand. Now, you just understand me. That it's this idea that where the amateurs recognize that they're being attacked, the pro realizes someone's stepping in to assist. They want to help. And so they lean into it. They open up their ears and they listen. They don't lob abuses. And this is a subtle difference, but this is the very base of the first shift we have to make if we want to be people who become open to correction, is that we have to be people that don't make our first reaction a pushback, but our first reaction being a lean in. When... Um, I was just starting in ministry. I was one of my first like ministry jobs was at a pretty large traditional church. It was this beautiful, large, massive church, and there was a pretty diverse group of people there. But there was a lot of older individuals who had trouble seeing because there was this three-tiered. I mean, there's this monstrosity of a building. It was beautiful, and, and so the leadership decided what we need to do is add screens on the side of the walls. And so people can see. We'll use cameras. It'll be like iMag. It's kind of essentially like if you go to the garden and you see the, the thing on the screen so you can see the faces. They essentially kind of added that. But they didn't want to mess with the architecture. They didn't want to, like, destroy the beauty of the building. And so they had a custom architect come in. And in the crown molding, they, they hit a trap door that when the message would start, the door would fold out and this screen would drop down. I mean, it was really impressive. And it was the first Sunday this screen was being used. And the cameras and everybody was like nervous, like how are people going to respond? And that day, this is a very traditional church, and one of the practices of this traditional church was that they had um, kind of a, like one of those lecterns that were, you know, like if 
junk went down and bullets started flying. You dive behind it. You're safe. I mean, it was solid. And then they had these like throne chairs. If, I don't know if you've ever been to these ch- churches where they have like, you know, like big and fancy and you're like, you can't even move that thing. And it's probably like my rent payment. Like, and it was just massive. And so that Sunday, um, the pastor, our little gathering goes around and he's like, Chris, you're on stage today with me. So I, I'm in the throne, like the little mini throne, not the big throne that he had, but the small throne. And so I'm, I go up on the stage, and, you know, we're all, like, filing into our throne chairs. And I've got the throne chair over here, and I, you know, I'm like, you know, and I sit down in it. And, and so the service is going well, but, like, out of the corner of my eye, I realize this massive screen, this 20-foot-long screen, about 18 feet this way, 25 feet this way. Um, it's, like, right behind me. And every time camera shifts, my eye sees it. And so at that point, a soloist, because this is a part of kind of the traditional way they would do it. It was a soloist would walk up, and they would, you know, and they would start singing. And the soloist was positioned here, and I was in my throne chair right here. And so the camera turns on the soloist, and the soloist starts like, you know, like Elsa, lets it go, man. It's like, woo! And, and I'm realizing out of the corner of my eye that, like, I go to turn my head because, you know, I'm just kind of, you know, I'm, sitting, I'm people watching. I'm like 2,000 people in front of me. I'm watching them because they're watching me. That's the only thing I can do back. And I happen to go this way, and I notice this really large movement out of the corner of my eye. And I go to turn around, and my eye catches. It's my large head. You see, the camera is kind of like channeled on the soloist doing this, but what it's really fixated on is me on the throne back here. And it's really uncomfortable. And people notice because, like, it's not just this movement. It's like a small bus makes a quick turn on the camera screens. Everybody sees my large melon. And so at this point, I'm sitting there, and out of the corner of my eye, which is about the size of a bowling ball to everyone in the auditorium, I keep doing this. Because I want to know, why is my face still up there? Because for 30 plus seconds, my face stays on that screen. And at this point, immature people in the audience begin to chuckle. Then some people I know begin to try to make me laugh. Because they think it would be funny. So I'm sitting up there trying to maintain composure while my face, my 20 foot wide face is on the screen. And I'm just like this, and the song finishes, and everybody claps, and no one's paying attention to her. And she sits down, and the camera pivots off of me, and I'm like, whew. After the service, I was doing what I do now at starting point. I was just waiting, talking to people. And uh, this gentleman walks up, this older gentleman, and he walks up to me. I do not know him. He looks at me, and he says, you missed a whisker. And I said, I'm sorry, What? You missed a whisker, young man. I, I don't know what that means. I'm like, well, what do you mean I missed a whisker? Well, you, when you were shaving this morning, you missed a hair right there. It's like, oh, oh, sure enough, I did. Turns out the whisker was about three feet long on the screen. Okay? And this guy proceeds to tell, like, he walks up to me. I'm thinking in my head, this man is about to tell me I I was concerned about the youth of the nation and the future. But after watching you endure with such kind of stern character and holding the composure, knowing your face was on that screen and you didn't lose control, son, I'm proud to be an American. Like, I thought it was going to be something like that. 
Like, way to go holding it together when everyone else was laughing at you. No, 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 no. You missed a whisker. And he proceeded to coach me up on shaving and talk about my whisker. And I, in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm really having this conversation right now. Most humiliating moment of my life. And this guy is point, pointing out that this morning I missed one hair when I was shaving. Now, what I could have easily done is pushed back on him, right? But I leaned in, and here was the lesson I learned that day, that I learned that as someone who is up on a stage, that what I don't pay attention to may become the thing that the audience does, that the, the thing I had missed may become the thing that they obsess about, and that as a communicator, my responsibility and preparation is to pay attention to those details, and that's been part of shaping me. Some of you have said to, to Jason and I, one of the reasons I love about this church is the way you pay attention to details, the way you notice the small things. Well, it's because I missed a whisker a long time ago, and I decided I was not going to miss one again. You see, when you're willing to not just push back but lean in, you open the door to learn more. You start to see other perspectives. You start to see others' awareness of your own blind spots. And let me give you a phrase. It's really helpful that, that just to get really practical in how you do this. Instead of your first response to being told, fill in the blank of the way you could have done it better, instead of your first response being you're wrong, let your first response be tell me more. Tell me more. Tell me more does not mean you agree with them. It does not mean that you're kind of laying down for them to run over you. It just means you want to understand. You say, tell me more. Tell me more opens a door. And if you're willing to walk through it, you get blind spots, you get others' perceptions, you get their emotions, you get how your actions had impacted them specifically. And that by walking through that door, you become a better person because of it. But it only happens if your first response is not you're wrong. Because if you say you're wrong, you shut that door and it's not going to open up again. It gives you a freedom. It means no matter what's happened, you can build something out of it. You can make something of it. A whisker set the stage in small ways for the ways that people are impressed about this very church when they attend. Because I was willing to not push back, but instead to lean in. And that when we're willing to say, tell me more, and we ask questions, we don't offer excuses, but we look for explanations for why they've said what they've said. And we drive, and ultimately what we're driving towards specific behaviors, concrete examples, not generalities, not vagueness, but we, we press into those specific behaviors that we have done or not done that's led to the impact what we find is an opportunity for change that allows that relationship, whether it's with a coworker, whether it's with a spouse, whether it's with a child, a friend, or a family member, we, are, we open up the door for us to experience more in it. And this is why Solomon really wants his children to understand, because being open to correction can actually change your direction in life. And he's like, this is critical. You've got to learn to listen. To, to lean in and not push back. If you're here today, maybe you're like, I'm not sure I'm 
into the faith thing or I'm, I'm exploring faith, a really safe book to, to recommend to you if you want to kind of take this to a next level would be a wonderful book written last year called Thanks for the Feedback. Phenomenal book. I'll go ahead and give you a disclaimer. Pretty much everything in that book is found in the book of Proverbs. But, full disclosure, you, it doesn't talk about the book of Proverbs. But everything that gets unpacked in that book comes out, a lot of it, you can find in the same advice that Solomon gives to his children throughout this book of Proverbs. But that's not the only shift that has to happen. There's not just a shift in direction. There's also a shift in attention. That um, what you notice is in this passage that the, the, the amateur invites insults, abuse, and hate. If you, if you look at it at the surface level, what you realize is that the amateur focuses on the who. Right? All of these are personal, directive things. They insult the person. They attack the person. They abuse the person. They hate the person. Amateurs focus on the who in correction. Whereas the pros, right, they get wiser. They add to their learning. The pros focus on the what. See, the amateur just hears the who. They just see the who. They don't actually hear the what the who is saying. And this is a really subtle thing, but that shift from the who to the what is a significant game changer if we want to lean into correction. Oftentimes, we will write people off. We'll, we'll miss the point they're trying to make because all we see is the person making it. And we rob ourselves of opportunities to learn and to grow from others around us. That the pro will actually listen to the information and not get caught up with the individual. And that means that the pro can learn from anyone. Which is why you see Michael Jordan learning basketball tips and skills from people that were not as good as he was in basketball. I mean, think about it. Who teaches Michael Jordan how to play basketball better? Like, no one can get on the court and say, let me demonstrate how to do this. But Jordan recognized, right, this is this whole idea of being coachable. He recognized that the credibility of inform it's the credibility of the information, not the individual that makes the difference. Many of us shortchange ourselves and we destroy relationships or we shut the door because we gauge the credibility of what's being said on who is saying it. And that's actually not right. Solomon is saying, son, like children, come here, listen, it's the information, not the individual that matters. And when you get that, that means even your enemies can teach you something. Even that ignorant, irritating boss of yours can help you get better. It means that everywhere you step into, no matter who says it, they may actually deliver something gold to you. Because many of us, we confuse the message and the messenger, and sometimes it can be devastating when we do that. 1986, um, I remember probably with some of you, the explosion of the Challenger. That was one of those like vivid moments. There's a couple moments in history that just will forever be burned into my mind, and the Challenger is one of them. Just watching that, remember, like, School kids all around America gathered to watch this happen. This is this, you know, amazing moment. And then this, this rocket, this shuttle just dissolves in front of our eyes. 
And it was a really big deal in 1986. And uh, in kind of in the aftermath, they bring in Richard Feynman, who's this extraordinary physicist, one of the sharpest minds in physics at the time. And he helps to lead out in this investigation in the aftermath of what happened. And so Richard Feynman, in interviewing the engineers, trying to figure out why did this mechanical defect get so far along and why did something like that lead to the loss of so many lives and countless millions of dollars and all the, the, just the ripple effects of what happened out of the Challenger explosion. And what Feynman discovered is he would inter interview engineers working on the project and he would say, tell me what you estimate the failure rate to be. What, what did you think the failure rate of the mechanism that led to the explosion, what did you think its failure rate was? And the engineers who worked on the project would say, we estimated the failure rate to be around 1 in 200. That for every 200 times that that mechanism was activated, um, there was a chance that one of those 200s would ripple and would go completely against what it was supposed to. Which is, none of us, right, would get in a car if you were told, hey, by the way, the brakes have a 1 in 200 chance of failing on you. Right? None of us would be comfortable with that, would you? But what happened is that by the time Richard Feynman was finished with his interviews, his last interview, the last question was to the head of NASA. And he said, what do you estimate the failure rate of the mechanism to be? He said, well, based on what I heard, um, it was about a 1 in 100,000 chance. The engineers, 1 in 200. But by the time it got to the head of NASA, that had transformed into one out of 100,000 times. And what Feynman concluded in his investigation was that this whole concept of shooting the messenger had derailed the problem being solved at the base level because with each level it passed through, the, the, the individual reporting it to their boss was concerned how it might be perceived, and so they would soften it. And one out of 200 turned into one out of 100,000, and lives were lost, and a nation grieved. Because when you fixate your attention on the who, sometimes the what can be devastating. And this danger is why Solomon recognizes, look, you're going to be leading a nation. You're going to be leading a people, and you need to be a person who listens for the what, not who fixates on the who. That it is an amateur move to kill the messenger and think you've solved the problem. But many of us do that in our marriages. We do that with our kids. We do that at our workplaces. We think if we shoot the messenger, we've addressed the problem. But in the end, all we've done is we've weakened and reduce the potential that we'll hear about another problem down the road that could destroy us. And this is where, to, to get very practical, where this looks like just two different ways. One is this element that in the book I referenced, that if you, if you just read this one chapter, I think it'll be helpful. It's in chapter 11, it's called switch tracking. And this is something that oftentimes when I'm kind of counseling couples or walking with uh, kind of a pretty confrontational relationship. This is one of those um, kind of ditches people fall into. Switch tracking is where uh, maybe your spouse says to you when you get home, hey, the dishes were in the sink. I thought we talked about this. 
Why aren't they in the dishwasher? Right? And you walk in, you come home, you're long day at work, and you're like, seriously? You want to you wanna do this over 18 inches? Right? And instead of responding to, well, I'm, I forgot that we had that conversation, or you know what, uh, that extra three feet down into the dishwasher really does a number on my back, and it's just, you know, just not, not the moment for me. Instead of any kind of response, what we do is we level another accusation. Well, you know what? At least I can squeeze the tube of toothpaste, correct? All right. Or maybe you go nuclear with it and say, well, you know what? And somebody's mom gets brought in, right? All of a sudden, it's like elevated to the in-law level. Now, the problem was this behavioral issue, this small behavioral tweak that they wanted you to make, which was dishes and the dishwasher. They thought there'd been a discussion around that. And then this small behavioral tweak turns into and a character assault with each other, where it's all these things that you're both doing wrong get thrown in front of you. And the core issue, the central behavior that started the whole thing in the first place, completely gets ignored. And it's called switch tracking. It's you're on this track, dishes and dishwasher, and you switch it, and now you're over here, and then you switch it, and you're over here, then you switch it, and you're over here, and then you get to the end, it's two hours later, you're screaming at each other, things are broken, doors have been slammed, and you don't remember what started the argument that addressed 17 of the issues in your relationship that you have not dealt with. And then later that night, or the next day, or maybe you're in your car, and you have some down moment, or maybe you're reading the Bible, and you get a passage, you're like, oh, maybe... That was not the best way to respond. You go back, and you're like, I don't even remember what we were arguing about. But I said a lot of harmful things. You know the problem with words is that you can say you're sorry for them, but you can't take them back. Right? Your statement gets stuck inside their head. And you can't, you can't undo it. And that switch tracking is what gets you in trouble. One thing that I've shared that Jenny and I do is... Um, is Kind of, we call it switching sides. Um, it's using the lens of we, not me. Where, um, let's say the problem, you know, we're sitting here, we're talking, um, and uh, it's usually me because I'm the one that tends to be really good at doing stupid things in the house, and I do something stupid, okay? Um, probably did it yesterday. And, and so she'll say something about this dumb thing that I did right here. This is the problem. And um, what can happen if we're not careful, right? Is she's like, hey, dishes in the dishwasher. And I'm like, hey, your mom, right? And then it's like, bah, 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 you know, and what happens is like the dishes in the dishwasher and we start to like cha, 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 attack. And, and so what we've learned, this is something we do in our house. We will physically do this is I will be like, okay. And I will walk over here or she will come over here and we'll say, let's deal with the problem together. Let's we attack this, not me attack you. And it's small, but I'm telling you, it has prevented arguments from escalating. Preventing us from going into places that we can't take back with words that we can't unsay to each other. And it's that switching sides and saying, let's talk about this problem. And sometimes in our most tense moments, it's sitting side by side. And whether it's a financial conversation, whether it's a parenting conversation, whether it's something I said, stupid conversation, it's us sitting side by side and saying, let's talk about this problem 
and let's conquer it together so that it does not tear us apart. And that, that switch tracking or that switch sides can actually be really helpful for us. But here's the danger. Here's how I want to kind of wrap it up with you because I think the problem with feedback is that we don't realize there's sometimes there's something working against us that we start to get into this problem. And what happens is that as we're trying to talk, we start to experience feedback. And what you hear right now is feedback. Feedback happens and it starts to dominate and all of a sudden you lose the voice, you lose the conversation because what happens is the same thing you just experienced in that. So here's the physics of feedback, which is really cool, right? So what happens is as I'm speaking and my voice is actually not really originating as much from here as it is from these two things. And so um, whenever you hear feedback, what's kind of mechanically happening is that the sound coming out of the speaker travels back into the microphone and it creates this loop. It's really incredibly fascinating loop in physics. And so my voice coming out of here goes back into here. And these certain frequencies, that's why only certain frequencies are doing it. And so there's certain frequencies go back in the microphone and they get amplified again because my voice is being amplified through the speaker and it keeps going through. And that frequency that's now a little bit louder than it was goes back in the microphone. And now this time it's even louder and it's coming out of the microphone. And next time it's even louder. And eventually what you hear is, and it sounds like someone's killing a cat transformer. Right? I mean, it's this really strange sound that comes out. That's what feedback is. We can't see it because it's sound waves, but that's what's happening. It's this loop, this escalating, 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 amplifying frequency. And we do the same thing when we get into conflict, when someone offers correction. That feedback loop shuts us down and we stop hearing people. What we hear bouncing around our head, looping and looping and looping and getting louder and louder and louder is what they said to us, right? And we, honestly, some of our insecurities are playing into that amplification. Some of our inadequacies are mixing into that amplifier. And so a comment about you need to make better decisions with our finances starts to sound like I'm a failure because that's what the insecurity is doing. That's what the inadequacies are doing. Right? Our inability to communicate. Or why can't you just tell me that? Why don't you just share with me? Well, the, the insecurity we have of speaking up and the past issues that have come out of that time you shared and then growing up in a household where people didn't share their feelings, they just fought their feelings. That all this is ramping up and it gets louder and louder and amplified and greater and greater. And we start to live inside our own heads. And we can't even talk to one another because all we can hear is this loud ringing of what they said to us and all that it's doing on the inside. And maybe I'm the only one. But I think that oftentimes we shut down conversations because we get sucked into the conversation that's already happened in our head. And that derails us. And a lot of this insecurity and a lot of it, can I just be honest with you, is at the, at the core is a lie. The core of oftentimes these insecurities is this feeble attempt in our minds that we're perfect. Like the, the last thing on planet Earth I should be surprised by is that I make mistakes. Or that I did something wrong. I'm not perfect. I don't know about anybody else. Let's go ahead and have a counseling session. My name is Chris Causey. I'm not perfect. 
In fact, I have not had a single perfect moment in my life because even the perfect moments I try to have in my, my attempts to make it perfect, I mess it up. Right? We can, we can go to Disney and have an argument. It's supposed to be the happiest place on planet Earth. I can mess up Disney. I'm not perfect. And because I recognize I'm not perfect, because I recognize I am broken, it means I'm not surprised when somebody points it out. Hey, did you know you're broken? <gasps> what? No, I know I'm broken. I know I do not have it together. That's why I don't pretend. Because I'm, I'm really bad at pretending. I can't even do that. Well, but there is a freedom that is recognized. And here's the thing. It is at the core of the Christian faith. You may be in this room and you're not a Christian. And let me go ahead and cut to the heart of what Christians believe. Christians believe we are broken. That I am fundamentally flawed. And that life is not really usefully done well when you try to live projecting perfection. That the core of the Christian hope message is the fact that God projected his perfection onto me. And his perfection is not threatened by my imperfection. And it's that perfection projected on me that we celebrate every Easter that gives me a confidence to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Because I have that conversation with God a lot. And I have that awareness inside a lot. And I would to say to let you go, to let you be free, is to find the fact that you are not perfect. Quit pretending. And when you stake a stake in the ground and you say, I will not pass this point because I did not mess up and I did not make a mistake. It's a small, pointless hill to die on. Because the people around you know you're broken. It's not a secret to them. And when it's no longer a secret to you, there's freedom. And you can start to dial back that amplification that happens in your head. And you can start to get out of that feedback zone and actually become open to feedback. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for Easter. Thank you that it shatters the lie. It breaks through the, the feeble attempts for us to project, project perfection. That we can um, be people who live um, out of that feedback zone. That we can be people who take steps, who shift out of that feedback zone, who recognize, God, that we can lean in and that we can listen to the what no matter who says it. Because there's a security in you that our value is not rooted in our good or bad days or our attempts, but that our value was demonstrated on a cross. That it was finalized in a bill of cell when you broke through the grave. And that it gives us a confidence to begin to move and walk forward. So thank you for, for the privilege the honor of being able to accept your perfection projected over us of what heaven has done to be experienced here on earth. And may we, in our various realms of life, may we go pro 
as we become open to correction. And it's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for being here today. Before we wrap up, uh, we're going to respond with a song. And um, it's a song called Here is in Heaven. And it's really just this declaration that um, at the end of the day, God desires that our lives reflect um, the life that he lived on earth, that we would demonstrate that love and that grace and that we would live out in such a way that what he has done in heaven and on earth would be manifested in our lives and that people would taste heaven through their interactions with us, that they would get a glimpse of who he is by their interactions of who we are. And, and that's why even uh, with our postponing the egg drop, we had 3,500 people and 1,000 on the waiting list. And we said, you know what? We can't cancel this thing. We've got to relocate and reschedule and push this thing out. And so this Saturday, we're going to redo it. But at the heart of all of that is that we believe a church should be known for what they do for the community, that we are a generous people, that we live generously, that we act generously. And, and so in the service every single week, for those who call Encounter Church Home, we carve out a space for them um, and for, for me and for us to be able to give um, to him. And out of that generosity, and it's in those gifts that allow us to do those generous acts that we do in this community and throughout the world. Um, it's also a space and place where, as Jason's referenced earlier, if you were here and it's your first time, we would like to get to know you better, or we'd like to be able to pray for you. And this is where that connection card on the app or, that, or the physical card gives you an opportunity to let us get to know you. Um, but it's also kind of finally just to be a place for us to process. There's probably conversations we've had this week where if we'd have heard this message, we'd have done it differently. And this is just where you, kind of in the presence of God, get to say, Lord, I'm sorry. Help me to be a person who leans in, that doesn't push back. Just kind of commit the lesson into our hearts and our lives. And so I want to invite you to stand. The band's going to lead us in singing. And then I'll be, I'll be up right after uh, to kind of dismiss us. But thanks for being at Encounter Church today.